Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall. And we are joined today by Colorado Mesa University Professor of Criminal Justice, Dr. Katie Dryling. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, you have a vast history in criminal justice, and I know there's a lot of different kind of uh, fields or directions you can go in when you are studying or practicing in criminal justice. Can you give a little background on um, the different areas you've been focusing in on your during your career? Yeah, so one of my primary focuses as far as the curriculum I teach is the field of corrections. Um, a lot of my professional background is in the corrections field, primarily working with juveniles in a variety of different settings. I've worked in group homes, halfway houses, and detention settings. And I've also done some work with uh, juvenile sex offender treatment as well. So when I came on to CMU here, that was one of the, the areas that they wanted me to focus on as far as the classes that I teach. In addition to that, um, I have a sociology background as well. So I teach some of our more theoretical classes like criminology, which is understanding why people commit crime in the first place. And I teach some other kind of interesting classes that are kind of a little bit more gender related as far as intimate partner violence and women and crime. So those are some of the kind of niche areas that I tend to focus on. But I've also taught some of our kind of more general classes as well. So we probably don't have enough time today to cover off on all of it, but that was really interesting. You said that one of the areas that you focus on is why people commit crimes. Can you tell us maybe very briefly the basis for that? Because that I feel like is an interesting, interesting subject. So criminology is, is trying to answer that question, why people commit crime. And we can look at all sorts of interesting answers to that that question. There's kind of the more micro level, which tries to understand why individuals commit crime. So there you could look at the biological level, as far as what's going on with maybe our DNA or our brain functioning. Um, you could look at it at the psychological level in terms of how people develop and how they interact with other people and how they process their thinking. And you can also look at it in terms of the more macro level, as far as why groups or um, larger communities commit more crime than others. And you can also look at, you know, why there were certain time frames that had higher crime rates. So there's lots of different theoretical approaches that, that try to answer that, that very big question of why people commit crime. And can you break it down even to maybe like the region of the U.S.? I mean, are you finding in your research that there are areas where, yeah, people in the Midwest find themselves in this kind of criminal activity versus this kind based on where they live or where they grew up? Possibly, yeah. So in, in more urban areas, you'll probably see more violent crime. Um, in more rural areas, that crime's going to look a little bit different. Um, I know for a time period when we had the big meth epidemic, there was lots of crime in rural areas with regard to production of, of that particular type of drug. Um, <clears throat> and there's certain types of crime that are prevalent uh, no matter where you go. Um, so is that kind of what you were asking yeah, for? Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. And then corrections. How did you how did you get there? And I mean, you said, ju I mean, there's a lot of different areas in corrections that you focus on. What about juveniles kind of drew you to, to want to help or understand and, and go into that world? There are a couple things that led me to the juvenile realm. Uh, number one, I still very much looked up to my big sister. I still look up to her. Um, 
And she was entering into the, the field of corrections, so I kind of, you know, was looking at her saying, oh, that might be kind of interesting. Um, and the other big reason why I got into corrections with, with the juveniles um, is because it was what was accessible to me. Uh, being an undergraduate, when I was um, starting my education in the criminal justice field there, I wanted to try to get some part-time work that was related to the criminal justice field. Um, I, and so that was an area that was accessible to me as far as um, what could I do that I could get paid and not just have to volunteer or intern, um, but that could start to build my, my resume. Maybe you can paint a picture for us. Um, I think maybe some people, when they think halfway house, they think, you know, a violent, dark, scary place. Maybe is that is that a myth or can you debunk that for us? Is is it maybe a place of hope and rejuvenation and a fresh start? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of group homes and halfway houses, um, they're just that. They're they're homes. Um, a lot of them have warm, nice, you know, comfortable feels to them, and that is by design. Um, it's part of that reintegration process to keep juveniles as much in their community as we can. Um, they're a lot better setting as opposed to like detention centers and things like that um, as far as being able to access treatment and, and good quality programming. Not that there's not good quality programming in detention, but um, we want to, as much as we can, try to keep those juveniles in their community because there tends to be a little bit more access to, to better resources in those settings. Um, as far as, you know, looking at group homes and halfway houses as a whole, um, there are some challenges to some of those facilities because there aren't a lot of communities that necessarily welcome those types of facilities. So when you have that, that situation of not in my backyard, um, you might have those facilities located in a little bit less desirable locations. Um, you'll probably more likely to see that with some of the adult facilities, though. Um, the the one group home I worked in for the most years that I worked in that field um, was in just a regular suburban neighborhood, and a lot of people didn't even realize it was a group home for juveniles, uh, juvenile delinquents. So Interesting. So I feel like the topic of criminal justice reform has been a part of our national conversation for a while, but probably more pointedly within these last couple of years, especially with the murder of George Floyd. I'd be curious, with your years of experience in all different facets of criminal justice, where do you think we've made the most progress and where do you think maybe we still have areas to make the most progress in? Oh, gosh. Um, so for me, some some good movements towards progress that, that we've seen already are some of the decriminalization of, of certain offenses, um, particularly drug offenses. So trying to get us away from that war on drugs has been helpful. Um, we ended up incarcerating just a, a, a vast amount of people during that, that, that era. Um, and that era is also part of the, the tough on crime areas as well. So trying to decriminalize a lot of offenses, um, particularly drug offenses, that's a good start. Some pockets of the country are a little bit ahead of the curve than other pockets of, of the country. Um, there's also been some adjustments to various three strikes laws as well. So those three strikes laws are those policies where, you know, once you hit that third felony, it's a very lengthy uh, prison sentence, usually 25 to life. 
Depends on the state, though. So those are two areas that we've seen quite a bit of change in terms of policy and sentencing efforts. Um, I think another area, too, has been increased transparency within law enforcement. We've seen the introduction of body cams. Um, that has gone a long way to help us hold uh, police agencies accountable and, and also individuals on the street accountable. Um, and if you talk to most police officers, they will say that they actually appreciate the body cams. Um, a lot of people initially thought that, oh, they're not going to be game for this. Um, but most of them, it's it's been a very useful tool for them as far as investigation and, and whatnot. Areas that we could use some improvement. Um, one area that I would like to see improvements are with our public defender system. It is very underfunded. Um, so individuals who are going through the criminal justice system are at a significant disadvantage if they don't have a decent amount of money to, to help them through that process. Um, and it's not that our public defenders are necessarily, you know, quote, bad lawyers um, or anything like that. It's just the fact that their caseloads are very deep and um, they don't necessarily have the resources to to effectively manage all those cases. So that that's just one area that I think would be helpful to kind of even out a lot of the disparities that we see in our criminal justice system. And, you know, here in the U.S., it's obviously you're innocent until proven guilty. It It's somewhat surprising that we're not putting money behind public defenders. Then if that is, you know, that is what we decided a long, long time ago, and that is what... Oh, that's our philosophy. That's what we believe in. That's, you know, everything. So why, why is there a lack of funding in that area? Well, some of it has to do probably from that history of that, that focus on tough on crime um, and wanting to provide resources to, you know, the other side, trying to fight crime. Um, you know, we've gone, our pendulum kind of shifts back and forth throughout history as far as being focused on public order and fighting crime versus those other eras that focus more on individual rights and protecting everyone with those rights. Um, so some of it has to do with kind of where, we, where we're at. I think some of it, too, is that, you know, people who defend, quote, criminals, even though it's innocent until proven guilty, sometimes get a bad reputation that, oh, you're representing, you know, these, these bad criminals, and so I think there's some hesitancy to provide support for that. Um, but I think it's, I think we're starting to turn the corner where people are starting to, to remember that we have to value those, those due process rights. Um, the data definitely shows that people who don't have as good quality legal defense um, are more likely to get convicted. Um, and are more likely to serve longer sentences. So I know you not only have a wealth of experience from before you came to CMU, you've also now been teaching at CMU since 2011, but you're also still very heavily involved in our community. So I was hoping we could take a minute just to talk a little bit about, I know there's a um, intimate partner awareness conference that you help on, that there's a domestic fatality review team you're on. Um, so could we talk a little bit more about those and maybe why you find it to be important to, to serve on those types of community initiatives? Yeah, so intimate partner violence is a, a very pervasive yet still very hidden problem. Um, it touches everybody. It, it impacts 
people of all races and ethnicities, of all social classes. Um, the vast majority of people in this country knows someone who's probably been touched by some form of intimate partner violence. Um, it's a it's a topic area that's very kind of close to my heart because it is so pervasive that I think that any of the students that are majoring in criminal justice are going to encounter it in some way, shape, or form. So I, I wish I could make every criminal justice student take my intimate partner violence class uh, because it's it's just it's it's everywhere um, and and it's a lot of criminologists think that you know if we can solve the problem of violence in the home we can probably tackle a lot of other criminal justice problems that we're experiencing so to me that's that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important um, I, I participate in a lot of these efforts for prevention in our local community because we do have a need for it. Um, so I'm on the I'm on a planning committee that that sets up a spring conference every year that brings in speakers and, and we do trainings for this particular topic specifically. Um, it's really wonderful because we get to host it on CMU campus. We bring in local practitioners and agencies to participate in that training, but also because we host it on CMU campus, all students, faculty, and staff get access to that for free if they want to learn more about it. Another thing I'm involved in is the Domestic Violence Fatality Review Team. And that is where we, we review local fatalities or near fatalities that have some component of intimate partner violence in them. Um, they're, for the most part, closed cases. Um, and we basically bring every possible entity that touched that case, so investigators, responding officers, um, attorneys, victim advocates, um, the coroner. Uh, we try to bring as many players that were involved in that case to really dive in to that case and look at whether or not there were any missed opportunities for intervention or if there's something maybe we could be doing differently to prevent future homicides in relation to those cases. What are some things you have learned from that? I mean, I'm sure you've come out with some, yeah, real, real tangible things you guys can maybe look at. Yeah. So with, with regard to domestic violence fatalities, some of the biggest red flags that we have are access to guns, a history of strangulation, um, and a history of sexual assault in those relationships. Um, more locally, what we've we seem to find is that we just need more awareness. We've, we've seen some cases where maybe family members or friends or coworkers kind of knew that something wasn't right in a relationship, but didn't really understand the full gravity of what was going on. And that, you know, not to put the, the whole responsibility on, on those bystanders, but but perhaps maybe if we had better education of just in our community, um, that maybe we could have gotten some type of advocacy or support for that for those victims possibly sooner. So everything we're talking about is obviously very important, but it's also heavy. I mean, and you've been doing this now for many, many years. How do you handle all of it as far as from a mental health perspective? Because I'm sure the rewards are huge, but it's also really heavy material that I think could weigh probably on your mind a lot. 
Yes. Yeah, so when we when we talk about these heavy topics in my classes, I always try to at least end the class with something light. Um, that could be something as simple as cute pictures of puppies on on the screen <laughs> to look at before we go. Um, just today in one of my classes, we talked about some pretty heavy stuff, and um, I showed a, a short clip of of dogs failing at being dogs, um, just to kind of shift their kind of that depressing, you know, or frustrating um, mentality um, before they leave my classroom. Um, I'm lucky that I, I, I teach this stuff. So although I encounter it, I don't have quite as direct encountering encounters with this stuff as, as much as a lot of the people I work with in the community do as far as victim advocates and lawyers and police officers who really do firsthand experience this stuff. Um, they, you know, in talking with them, because a lot of my students ask them this question too, how do you, how do you deal with this? How do you not bring this home? And a lot of the practitioners out there say, you know, you've got to, in a sense, sort of start to desensitize yourself a little bit to it, but you know, you're not going to be a robot. Um, but also having a good, healthy kind of work-life balance. Um, I know a lot of practitioners that that exercise a lot and, you know, use that as an outlet for stress and some of that heavy stuff. And of course, that's, there's also, you know, a lot of support systems set up within these agencies that they can reach out to when they need to talk to someone about it. There's been a lot of media coverage on some communities in the country who aren't just dispatching police with every 911 call and instead dispatching maybe some social workers, depending on the situation. From your, you know, with your vast experience, what are your thoughts on that? And do you guys talk about that in your classrooms and how things are evolving in real time? That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of communities that are starting to employ the use of mental health practitioners um, and social workers as kind of like dual responders for law enforcement. Um, I'm not terribly familiar with with how this is all playing out because law enforcement isn't quite my forte, but um, I think it's a step in the in the right direction to at least explore this option. We know that law enforcement over the years have been asked to do more and more and more at their jobs. Um, and I think a lot of people have thought that perhaps some some situations, some types of calls maybe shouldn't be responded to by law enforcement. And I think there's a lot of officers that would probably agree with that. Um, not that they don't want to help, but that um, particular calls might be better suited for different people from different backgrounds and different areas of expertise. Um, but it's interesting to look at this dynamic of, of maybe having a support or a mental health practitioner along on a, re on a responding call um, to make sure there's that, you know, that therapeutic mental health piece presence there, but also that, that, um, that safety factor there as far as, you know, on the law enforcement side as well. In your 10 plus years at CMU, I'm sure you've seen our criminal justice program change and adapt to what's happening in the world and in our nation. What are maybe some um, ways that you've seen the program change or adapt? 
Well, um, we we definitely have had to adapt in terms of the sheer number of students that we have coming into our major. So um, <clears throat> even despite a lot of the tension that's going on in our country and the criticism of the criminal justice system, there's still um, a lot of students that are interested in, in pursuing this career option. So some other areas that we've adapted and changed throughout the years, um, we've added faculty to our to our list, uh, thankfully. Um, but we've also adapted in terms of um, adding more courses to our curriculum, looking at issues of, you know, diversity, inclusion, and, and some of the, you know, societal issues that are affecting the criminal justice system. I've adapted some of my own coursework to take a more critical viewpoint of the criminal justice system so that when students are graduating from our program, they understand what the critiques are of the system and where the problems are and hopefully where we can start for directions for to, you know, to fix those issues. Um, we've grown our program in terms of um, more hands-on opportunities for our, our students as well. We've increased our, our relationships with various agencies. So students have many opportunities for internships to get their foot in the door and get kind of a, you know, dip their toes in the water for what what it's really like out there in the field. We have also developed the Forensic Investigation Research Station, or FERS, um, more commonly probably referred to as the body farm. Um, so there's lots of opportunities to learn out at that facility. Um, it's one of the very few facilities in the country that allows undergraduates to intern at, at that particular facility, so that's really neat. We've uh, acquired a, a crime scene house. Um, a lot of incoming freshmen have lots of questions and curiosities about it. It's, it's just a house. <laughs> um, it's where we stage, you know, fake crime scenes. Um, but it, it gives our students a lot of really neat opportunities to actually go through the process of processing a crime scene. We've, we've done a lot <laughs> with our program. Yeah, and I know, too, just a, a recent addition is our new master's degree in criminal justice. Can you talk about why we thought that was an important program to add and what maybe need we see in our community? Yes. Yeah, so the reason why we put together the master's program, it's a fully online program. It's really designed for working practitioners to come back and get some get that graduate education that's really designed to help promote them into leadership positions. Um, there's no other local option. Um, and so we thought that, you know, because we do have a lot of different agencies here, we've got various law enforcement, we've got corrections, we've got the legal realm, we've got victim advocacy, you know, we have all the parts of the system going on here locally. Um, there's definitely going to be people who are wanting to get promoted in their jobs. And so we designed the program for that specific reason. So it's really focused on leadership and administrative responsibilities in the criminal justice field. I have to say I am a true crime binger of all kinds, whether it's a television show, a podcast. What is our, I can't be the only one out there, so I'm hoping there's I'm, some. I'm a true crime <laughs> binger too. Okay, good, good. Because I'm wondering, what is our fascination with this? I mean, why are we binge watching these really horrible shows? <laughs> it's deviancy. Uh, people have always been fascinated by, by deviant things. Um, and the more deviant, the better. <laughs> so crime has always been a fascination 
for that, it's it's different. It's out of the norm. Um, you know, a lot of people have had discussions specifically about why females really like true crime. It seems like it's it's a very female sort of dominated area that that as far as you know fan bases go. My husband would agree with that. Mine too. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, some some women say you know it's for my own edification that if I ever find myself in this position, I know how to get out of it. Um, I I don't know. Um, I enjoy true crime myself. Um, I I really do. Um, I'm a big fan of more historical true crime. Um, so so that's kind of my little fun area that I like to to learn about. But it it all comes back to deviancy. The weirder and the stranger, um, the better. It seems you know. You know, the saying goes, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, that that's, that's kind of how that works. Um, I'm actually going to start advising. If we can get it up and running, I'm going to be uh, an advisor to a true crime club, student club that's going to be starting starting out on campus. So That's so funny. I <laughs> look forward to seeing what, what those guys do. <laughs> and I have to ask, so you have this crime, what do you, a, a stage crime house. What? I mean, I, I assume there's like fake blood. What are you guys using? Is it ketchup? I I actually, I don't want to, don't quote me on this, but I believe they use actual real blood um, if they're doing like blood spatter analysis. So it's all about, you know, they learn, I believe they learn, you know, photography. I don't teach a class. I should put that out there first of all. So um, sorry, Dr. Waters, I'm, if I really screw this up. <laughs> um but, um, and maybe Dr. Connors too. Um, anyway, um, you know, they, they stage a crime scene. Um, they learn how to photograph, you know, what processes to go to as you're, as you're walking through the house, how to document, um, you know, blood spatters, just, just one key element to that. Um, but I, I, I'm pretty sure they use actual real blood. So, I don't <laughs> Are you a big reader? Yeah. What's your favorite true crime book? Oh, um, or maybe even true crime podcast because I'm always looking for new podcast recommendations. Yes. Okay. Podcast might be an easier one for me to think of on the spot. I'm one of my favorite true crime podcasts um, is probably because it's an area where I grew up in is the the podcast about Jacob Wetterling, uh, the Jacob Wetterling disappearance. I think it's called In the Dark, maybe. Um, it came out right at about the time they were finally breaking the case and solving it. And I just, I remember growing up, um, because Jacob Wedling was kidnapped and disappeared right about my same age. I grew up in Minnesota. Um, so it was just really interesting to learn all the details of that specific case and just the, the many things that, that went on. Um, I don't want to do any spoilers or anything. I mean, they, they finally figured out who did it, but the spoilers would really become with how the case was processed. No one's asking, but my favorite book is um, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. So oh, write it down if you, haven't, yeah. if you haven't read it. I'd say one of my recent ones is the, the recent book that came out about the Golden State Killer. Uh, um, yeah. I know what you're I'll be about. I'll be home in the dark or something to that effect. Um, great book. Um, lots of details on that on that case. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Katie Dryling, for being here today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the See Me Now podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.